to level one. Ooh, look at this. We're nearly at the ground floor. We should probably take the stairs from here, eh? Quite busy on level one, I've got to say. Yeah. Sports events back on. Cafes, bars, they're busy. And you don't have to sit down all the time. What about the International Departure Lounge? What's that looking like? Hmm. Might be a while yet, eh? Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Tuesday the 9th of June. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we cover the news, some of the more unusual things about this global pandemic, and then we take a look at one particular aspect. Hurrah! Boy, you really are excited about Level 1, eh? No, it's the news that Shorten Street is returning to its full weekly schedule from June's 29th. They were cut back to four and then down to three episodes a week during lockdown because physical distancing restrictions kicked in. But now they can ramp up again. Two things. I'd have thought the nurses and doctors of Shorten Street would have been essential workers. But secondly, never picked you as a Shorty Street fan, Adam. Well, to be honest, I'm not. More of a 1pm press conference fan myself. Yeah, now it's been canned. I know, so I'm gutted about that. It was Dr Ashley Bloomfield's last show today, and he bid a fond farewell to everyone, including a shout-out to the reporters. He didn't exactly get all weepy about it. I mean, this is the man who celebrated the country's move to zero active cases with a, quote, broad smile. But he said he hoped the press conferences had served their purpose. Yeah, the closest he got to an emotional farewell was deadpanning that anyone who was missing seeing him could go and look at artwork of him, which is hanging it to Papa. Great idea. That's my first day sort of when I visit Wellington next. Later on the show, mental health advocate Tammy Allen talks about how Kiwis coped with the mental stresses of lockdown and gives strategies for coping with the new ones facing us. But first, here's what's happening. Tighter restrictions for people who have flown back to New Zealand for funerals in Tangihanga. 142 people have been given exemptions to leave mandatory quarantine to attend funerals or tangi in recent weeks, but no more. Dr Bloomfield says it's too risky now that there are no limits on numbers at gatherings. Instead, people will be able to apply for an exemption together with a small group of loved ones to mourn. And no new cases, the 18th day in a row. But there was a scare. Health authorities were alerted to a possible positive result this morning after two siblings with respiratory illness symptoms were tested. One of them came back with a weak positive, it's called. So that person was retested and this time was negative, which means they were confirmed to not have COVID-19. But you can imagine the pulses that were set off, can't you? Meanwhile, globally, the WHO says the number of daily cases has hit a new high. More than 136,000 cases were reported on Monday, the most in a single day. Three quarters of those cases were from 10 countries, mostly in the Americas and South Asia. But the WHO Director General Dr Tedros warned countries against complacency. Looking at you, New Zealand. OK, he didn't say that last bit, but you know. Dr Tedros also talked about the infection risk arising from worldwide anti-racism protests sparked by the killing of George Floyd in the US. He said the WHO rejected discrimination and basically supported the movement, but he warned those protesting around the world to, quote, do so safely. There's an interesting piece in stuff this morning from our colleague Amber Lee Wolf. It's drawn on research from Otago University about how COVID-19 affected people's political beliefs and how they viewed 
government decrees. The research found support for Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's leadership, that people viewed her as being one of us, doing things for us. It also looked at attitudes to authoritarianism and found that people were submissive, that leaders should be obeyed without question and, and young people should not defy authority. To be honest, the degree to which people agreed with those sentiments seemed a bit surprising. And it reminded us of a conversation we had early on with our colleague Andrea Vance. So we wanted to have a chat to her about this period of quite draconian government control that we've just come through. Welcome, Andrea. Hello again. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, thanks for coming back. So before we start this off, can you sort of briefly explain for a bit of background, really, where you grew up and and how that meant there were aspects of the lockdown which grated against you? Well, yeah. So I grew up in Northern Ireland, obviously. I'm sure I don't need to fill in the backstory of the of the 30 years of troubles we had there. And I suppose I value my freedoms and my liberty like I treasure them and I cherish them because I see how quickly they can be taken away. Um, in my lifetime, I saw, you know, that kind of bad acting from the state, curfews, streets blocked off, uh, city divided, that kind of thing. And I just was, I'm not comparing the two in any way, absolutely not. And I'm not saying that what we did in New Zealand was was not the right thing, because clearly it was. But it just made me slightly uncomfortable. It always makes me slightly uncomfortable or actually hugely uncomfortable when people blindly follow politicians and do not question. And I felt like, and I did write an article about this after our conversation, I felt like there wasn't enough questioning of the government and the officials' decisions. And that just didn't sit very easily with me. But like, again, I just want to reiterate, I'm not saying that it was the wrong thing to do. I just, you know, it's in my nature to always question and to have that in the back of my mind. The government and particularly the Prime Minister and the Director General of Health have enjoyed wide praise and almost beatification from some for how this played out. But how well do you think the state handled this imposition of restrictions? Well, take away the fact that what they did was successful. You know, like it's been eliminated. We've come out the other side. Yay, we're in level one. That's awesome. We're streets ahead of many, many other places in the world. That said... There was a huge level of uncertainty about the rules, about how they were to be enforced, what the penalties could be, and actually what, what the legislation was or what the laws were that covered this. And that went on for many weeks. And it was reflected in things like no one was really clear if the health minister was breaking the rules, you know, when he went mountain biking and moved house and things like that. That's probably the most extreme example. Then the police themselves, we saw those memos that came out from the police. They were unclear about how much they could enforce and whether they they genuinely had the authority to stop people who weren't sick and stop them going about their business. So, And it was only in the later weeks that that was clarified. And there were still a number of questions about, um, about the authority to do those things. So on one level, yes, it was absolutely stellar and we came out the other side of it and maybe you could accuse me of nitpicking, but I also think that these things are really, really important. When you're dealing with curbing people's freedoms and their liberties, um, I think you have to be extra careful and make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. How did you end up coping, particularly under levels four and three when there were really strict rules in place? Oh, I have to say I was a nightmare. <laughs> I hate it. I really hated it. And it was weird because I work from home 
you know, frequently. So I'll do a few days in the office. I'll travel a bit for work and, and I'll, and I'll write from home. So life wasn't difficult for me. It was, you know, but I just really chafed at the bit. I hate being told what to do. And I hate being told I can't do something. And I just was very resentful that my world was suddenly very, very small. You know, I did go for long runs and that was great. But other than that, I really resented that I couldn't go to the other side of the city and take the dog to the beach or, you know, like shopping. Weirdly, I wanted to go shopping for (laughs) things I didn't really even need. (laughs) So, but, but, you know, those are all just silly little things and, and, um, and an inconvenience. Like, you know, I had family members who were exposed to the virus and quarantined and that kind of thing. And that was obviously a little bit scary at the beginning, but on the whole, you know, it wasn't apart from the economic uncertainty and, and obviously this, this threat of, you know, whether we were going to lose our jobs or whatever that other than that, I think I, you know, we escaped quite easily from it. It wasn't too bad, but God, I hated it. So it all worked out nicely. We've come out the other side, but do you feel that politically and, and legislatively, there are things that we still need to make sure we unwind so that we have got thoroughly past this brief period of authoritarianism in New Zealand? Oh, 100%. Like all those emergency legislations need to, to have, you know, those sunset clauses need to expire. Particular, I mean, the things that concerned me most were the uh, warrantless searches on Marae and private homes. Um, you know, that, w- that was very worrying. All those things need to be unwound. We need to accept that it was a state of an emergency. And once we get back to normal, you know, life has to go on as normal. And one thing that, and I suppose this is a public relations sort of thing, but one thing I would would not like to cont- to see continue, and it's not necessarily authoritarian, but I do think it speaks to the openness of government and their ability to make decisions with public support and and the mandate of the people is is this trend that we have to make decisions and then and then feel like they don't have to defend them. Like I'm talking about that um, infamous controversial memo that came out um, in the middle of the crisis where the the government dumped a whole lot of documents and, and then put out a memo to its minister saying that you don't have to go on TV or you don't have to give interviews to defend these because we have public support. And that's just hugely arrogant. When governments start to think like that, like that's third term arrogance. When governments start to think like that, that's very dangerous, that they just accept that they have public support for everything they do and they don't feel that they need to consult and constantly go back to the public and um, you know, check in that what they're doing is is acceptable. And also, I think w- what we've noticed as well is that obviously Ashley Bloomfield and Jacinda Ardern were the public front of the crisis and all the other ministers didn't really do interviews, didn't really have to explain any decisions or any events or incidents that were going on. And when they did, they did them by Facebook Live so that they couldn't be questioned. So I think now we're out of that period, we need to get back to normal when actually Parliament has resumed, select committees are there, question time is there, and journalists are able to question politicians, you know, as normal. This shouldn't be the status quo. Well, it's going to be very interesting to see how Level 1 brings us back to normal in that regard too. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrea Vance. Thank you. There's been a real dance theme to this flurry of good news the last couple of days, hasn't there? The Prime Minister said she did a little dance with her daughter Neve when she found out there was no more active cases in New Zealand. That fact wasn't the bit of evidence she was waiting for to declare we were ready for level one, by the way. That was based on the whole big picture of cases over time and all that. But the news of no cases was still most worthy of a Prime Ministerial boogie. And then there's the Deputy Prime Minister. He was asked today about celebration dances. Asking that of Winston Peters is like offering MC Hammer a pair of baggy pants and asking him if he'd care to tell us what time it is, he's always going to say hammer time. 
Anyway, Winston Peters said, I did a war dance to make sure we got to level one. We did a war dance to make sure it was not on the 22nd of June or June 15. It was last night. So we've got the Deputy Prime Minister, the leader of the Coalition Partner Party, New Zealand First, claiming credit for the move announced yesterday. Politics, same. The other dancing is from those who we might expect to see tiptoeing around the head of a pin trying to explain away things they said at the start of lockdown. Those who pointed to Sweden's approach, those who said that being in lockdown was not going to help us eliminate the virus, that in the words of one commentator, we were going to have to stay in lockdown for 12 to 18 months in the absence of a vaccine, otherwise we'd never be rid of coronavirus. So what was the bloody point? I'm paraphrasing. Those who said, look, Australia has outperformed New Zealand without the same devastation of their economy. This is not the time for gloating or I told you sowing. There's still a need for vigilance. And we are still not away from the threat of the disease. Second wave, anyone? A slip up at the border, somehow allowing the virus back out, perhaps? The contact tracing system not being as robust as we'd like it to be, perish the thought? So are you saying this is not the last dance? That's exactly what I'm saying. I was wasting a few more minutes of my life on Twitter last night, which mostly meant scrolling past tweets about the problematic gender subtext of Harry Potter, when I noticed someone called Marin McLeod had posed an excellent question, and the question was this. Okay, what should New Zealand eliminate next? There were a few very sensible and very reasonable replies to the question, to what you do once you've got rid of COVID-19. So, you know, next things to eliminate, racism, poverty, inequality, or as one person put it, slavish admiration for the frameworks underpinning privilege, misogyny, greed, and outright power. And then there were a few slightly sillier ones. I quite like the calls for the elimination of cargo shorts and of repeated resetting of collapsed scrums, which I have had to get Eugene to explain to me. But my favourite, really, was an especially ambitious idea from someone called Dan, who reckoned it was time to get rid of, and I quote, the moon. Thanks for your input, Dan. Speaking of things that seem impossible to eliminate, though, Let's not forget conspiracy theories, arson and stupidity. I saw on Stuff this morning that police are investigating three new fires set on cell towers in South Auckland overnight. I think it's safe to assume that the decision to pour petrol onto three different chunks of very useful and quite expensive telecoms infrastructure and then set them alight was inspired by the deluded conspiracy theory that's echoing around Facebook, you know, the one about dangers of the new 5G cell phone technology. Hell, It might have even been done by one of those people who've gone full moon landing and found a connection between 5G cell towers and the spread of COVID. In any case, whatever the details of their motivation, the Luddite arsonist was perhaps not quite the genius researcher they think they are. None of the towers that were set alight were 5G. Email inbox. Did I tell you, Eugene, about an hour after Thursday's episode went out, I had the virus pod at stuff.co.nz inbox up on my screen and I just received a few emails from people racked up on the subject of the government's rubbish NZ COVID tracer app. Now, I've realised that Ashley Bloomfield today was being all upbeat about the app and how he loved to wave his smartphone at the QR codes wherever he wandered and that soon there will be thrilling new functionality that will allow the app to push notifications to users who have been to the same place as someone who's tested positive. But here at Coronavirus NZ, we formally take the position that the COVID Tracer app is pants, and we don't care if Mr Bloomfield disagrees with us. Dr Bloomfield even. Dr Bloomfield. Anyway, those emails we got on Thursday evening seemed to back our stance. Jeff Campbell wrote, The app is a disaster, have tried to use it on many occasions, but it only was successful twice. Jeff, that is a great pity, and I'm totally unsurprised. Dr John Wilcox's email gave some insight into why the number of businesses displaying the QR codes seems to be lower than it should. He wrote... 
We tried to get our official clinic COVID-19 QR code for the front desk, but the project was extraordinarily difficult, so I just gave up. Maybe would have tried harder if it was more threatening. And I, yeah, and I guess that's the point, isn't it? When, when there's little or no virus on the loose, it's hard to feel super motivated about QR codes. Yeah, and in, in the similar vein to Dr. Wilcox's email, uh, I heard from another business owner. Basically, they explained the hoops that you have to jump through. First of all, you need a Realme login. Then you need to use NZ Business Connect, which is a new system that's used to provide government services. And for that, you need authority over a company at the company's office. But as this business owner pointed out, often that authority is with accountants. The list just goes on and on and on. So yeah, the, the point of them getting in touch was to say, hey, don't blame business owners for not having QR codes up in their premises. It's complicated. Right, plague playlist. What do you got, Adam? Nothing. What? I, I, I can't just keep on playing lockdown joke songs from that South African guy, the Kiffness. He's very talented and all, but we're at level one. That stuff's just kind of getting old. Okay, so... Can we go back to the earliest versions of the Plague playlist where we thought about existing songs that fit at the moment? You know, Don't Stand So Close To Me. Fever. Anything By The Cure. Yo, Jane. I Think We're Alone Now or Billy Idol's Dancing With Myself. In My Room by The Mutton Birds. Ooh, that's a good one. I get it. But those are sort of lockdown songs. So what songs work for level one? We're the champions? Mm, somewhat triumphalist, don't you think? There's still people dying all over the world from this. And uh, what about I'm Still Standing? Mm, same problem, Adam. All right, okay. Uh, we're happy, we're in a dancing mood. What about walking on sunshine? Yeah, same problem, kind of, and it's winter. I know. What about, for those people you were talking about earlier, who said we went into lockdown too soon, then wanted to get out of it immediately, or said elimination was pie in the sky, so let's not try. What about we play, just for them, the Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want. Hey, just before you hit play, are we allowed to play real songs rather than these random parodies we've found on YouTube? You know what, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Just to be safe, I think we should just sing it ourselves. You can't always get what you want. If you keep that up, I'm going to bang out, thank you, big potato. I think I just did. Yeah. This is just, it's just so humiliating. <laughs> <That's> just... <laughs> About three weeks ago, in the middle of lockdown, there was a really strange story that popped up that made a bit of noise and then disappeared again. So what happened is that someone on Twitter posted to say they'd been talking to a cop who told them that suicides and lockdown were suddenly going off the charts. So that tweet kicked off a small online kerfuffle for about a day. It became an anti-lockdown talking point, particularly for the, the right-wing end of the Twitter sphere. In the end, it was debunked by the chief coroner, Deborah Marshall, who said it simply wasn't true that suicides were spiking. In fact, she said it was the exact opposite of the truth. Suicides had, in fact, fallen a little during lockdown. So it was a slightly unpleasant example of the way internet trolls can hijack the news agenda by just making stuff up. But it, it got some traction for that little while because in some ways it felt kind of plausible. You know, perhaps... Lockdown would be so tough that it would tip someone over the edge. Now, so one of the people who was following this pretty closely at the time was Tammy Allen. She's CEO of the mental health NGO Changing Minds and is deputy chair of the Suicide Mortality Review Committee. Hi, Tammy. Hi, how are you going? Very well. So, Tammy, that specific claim about suicide turned out to be totally untrue. But it stands to reason that fear of a global pandemic and a national lockdown 
could have been especially tough for people who, who were already struggling with the mental health. So Changing Minds is staffed by and works for people with lived experience of mental distress. So what kind of things did you hear about over the lockdown, about how vulnerable people coped? Look, I just want to touch on the suicide thing because that's actually really fascinating. And we have a real problem already in this country of confusing numbers of people who die with the rates of suicide. But actually our highest rate was way back in 1998 and it's been kind of steadily declining since that, even though our numbers have been going up. So it's kind of a population-based thing. I think... We've been um, connecting with thousands and thousands of people over lockdown, and the thing that stands out to me is actually all the good news stories, the, the amazing ways people are found to, to connect or reconnect with people in significantly different ways than they did before. And those have all been good news stories. Yeah, there have been some really challenging times, and I think any time we're going to have an economic downturn or any time our jobs are going to be in jeopardy or our, our families who um, we might only see at the, the beginning and the end of each working day ordinarily are in our bubbles ad nauseum annoying us, um, there's going to be, you know, some, some spikes and challenges. But, but mostly, you know, out of the thousands and thousands of people that we've spoken to, they've been good news stories and that's kind of cool. Did it work for some people this way? I've heard several people say, you know, they've had lifelong issues with anxiety, but they found in the middle of the pandemic, they felt strange, strangely calm, like almost like this is what they've been preparing for. And did you hear much of that? They feel like they've been training all their life. In fact, I, I yeah. mean, I think I can sh- share with you because he's been really open about it in the office and talked about it before. But one of my colleagues here in the office um, has said, you know, finally, um, people are hand washing like they should be and using disinfectant <laughs> like they should be and keeping their distance like they should be. And, you know, my behaviour and carrying hand sanitizer around the place is no longer weird or bizarre, but the norm. And so, and um, I mean, he's not the exception to the rule. There have been many, many people that have felt, oh, finally, we are where we should be and actually those people who have been living with isolation and loneliness and depression and anxiety suddenly go well now the rest of the world kind of understands a little bit about what that feels like and I feel okay and suddenly the tables have flipped a little bit in some of these relationships and they're the support people for people they're the ones that go well these are the things that have worked for me in the past when I felt really isolated or disconnected or anxious and they're passing on their tips which is um, really awesome actually because not only is it helping the person that they're responding to or they're helping, but it's actually reminding themselves of those things that keep them well. Mm. Even for people who've had no serious issues with mental health, a pandemic and, and job losses and all those things was going to be challenging for some people. In general, do you have a sense of how well New Zealanders have coped so far? Uh, how many times has it been said how lucky we are that we're in New Zealand right now? Uh, I think that you know the fact that our lockdown, whilst difficult for many people, um, was short, is pretty spectacular given what we're seeing overseas right now. But there are always extremes in mental health. What we've found is that the people that we were always seeing for mental health problems, we're seeing less of because they're actually being seen more. You know, mental health services have been reaching out to them more regularly through phone calls or Zoom calls or things like that. There have been different ways of connecting and people really responding to those ways. And then those new people that we're seeing, you know, I think what we have to remember is it's really normal to feel anxious and a little bit stink about being in a situation that no one in the world has ever been in. You know, we're in a situation where it's it's okay to feel a little bit anxious and a bit unsure about what the future looks like. And if we didn't have a little bit of anxiety about that, then I don't think we would be human. 
Mm. Everyone's experience is, is very different, of course, so it's really difficult to offer general advice. But do you have any tips for people who might, for one reason or another, be struggling? You know, how, how to cope with these additional stresses that might come along? Well, the first thing is to remember is to, to struggle is to be human. And so struggling is normal and okay and expected at this time. So that's the first barrier to get over. So once you recognise that actually I'm, I can't cope on my own here, then knowing that you can reach out. And the first people to reach out is the people that you trust, you know, that extended whānau, whether they'll be related by blood or not. The people, you know, there might be a couple of work colleagues you trust or a couple of mates that you trust or maybe the guys down at the RSA in the evening or your mother's group that you go and have coffee with. Those are the people that you know that if you said, this is really, really tough for me and I've got some really awful feelings going around right now, you know that they're not going to be the ones that call the cops or send you off to the hospital. Those are the ones you reach out to first. And you'll probably find that you probably share quite a lot of similar experiences. I mean, we've got a program called Whakato Mai, which is the online wellbeing sessions, which are free for all New Zealanders. And we're finding quite a lot of people are using those sessions, whether it be coming to a yoga class or going to, you know, some therapy groups to actually reach out and connect with other people that are having similar feelings. And it can range from feeling, oh, a little bit wobbly, I don't know, I need to look for a job now, to kind of extreme, um, you know, there's there's some stuff going on at home that that isn't cool and, you know, down the family violence path that we need to get help with and we always have someone sitting in on those sessions that's either a counsellor or a peer support worker that making sure that those people are getting the support they need if it's kind of a little bit more than you need then 1737 is an awesome resource because you can just text if you don't feel like talking you don't have to give your name or your NHI number or anything like that or you could call them up and you can talk to someone and see what you want to do next and then you know you can keep going up the pathway maybe I do need to go and see my GP and, and talk about what other options are out there and get a green prescription, you know, as opposed to a drug prescription. But what else is out there to support my well-being right now? And then if you need a little bit of psychosocial support or you need a little bit of job hunting or you need a little bit of talking therapy, then that can come through your GP. And and then there's the national rollout of the primary healthcare initiative at the moment. So in most of the clinics around the country over the next couple of months, you'll find that there's a, a HIP or a health improvement practitioner, which is, you know, silly long word, they can sit there and talk to you and go, okay, so what, what's on top of your mind? Is it diabetes that's really giving you the challenges right now or is it, is it anxiety and depression? And then they can go, all right, we well, can talk to me for a little while or you can go down the hallway and speak to a peer support worker. And they'll also have health coaches in there. So if you're looking at, you know, your physical well-being as well as your mental well-being, then people are starting to look like that in that primary care, that GP setting as a normal thing we should be looking at. It's not just going in for your warrant of fitness every few weeks, but actually mental health is part and parcel of us getting well. That's some great advice there. Can I flip it around? If you're the person that someone comes to and says, hey, I'm struggling, what what do you say? What do you do? It's much simpler than people think, actually, because you don't need to know what to do. Look, I'm a CEO of a mental health organisation. I don't have a mental health qualification. The only qualification I have is that I've had some really, really shit times in my life and I got through them and I thought, well, maybe what I've learnt can help other people too. And let's face it, every single human on earth has gone through really challenging times. And most of us, if you're still alive, have got through those challenging times or are getting through them and coping. So it's about sharing those and just sitting with someone and being the ear and not panicking, not going, oh my God, you need professional help or you need medication or you need a psychiatrist. It's actually just 
going and hearing about the context of their lives. If someone comes to me, for example, let's look at the extreme and say, I'm feeling really suicidal, I don't immediately panic and go and call the police or the doctors. I go, God, that sounds awful. Thanks very much for letting me know because that's kind of the worst case scenario that you're thinking this way. But the fact that you've raised it with me means that we can work through it. So what else is going on in your life? You know, I call it the bucket. You know, your bucket's full. It's full of water. Um, and, you know, the drops that have led up to that bucket being full might have been millions of different things. It might be, you know, the fact that you had an argument this morning and you lost your job and you can't pay your rent this week and someone overseas has got COVID-19, you know. Each one of those drops on their own you can probably cope with. But when the bucket is full, you only need one pebble to make it spill over. So as a friend, you can go, OK, let's have a look what's in the bucket. What are all the things that have led up to this point that you're feeling overwhelmed? And maybe we can just release some of those pebbles from the bucket so that the water level is a little bit lower and you can cope with it again. You don't have to fix those things for people, but helping to talk about them with it is really all you can do. You don't need to be a professional to do that. You know, you do that with your mates naturally. You do that with your family naturally. The New Zealand experience has been less catastrophic than in many countries of COVID-19. So perhaps it's not surprising that You've heard quite a lot of good news stories. But equally, anxiety is about expecting terrible things. When they happen, you don't have to worry about fight or flight. You actually get on with it. Is there any research suggesting that when things get worse in society, people actually cope really well? Yeah, I mean, um, it's scattered research, but certainly there's quite a lot after the Christchurch earthquakes that came out to suggest that In that moment of crisis, people coped spectacularly well. They supported each other. Community was brought together. People helped each other. You knew your neighbours, even though you'd never met them before. And then the mental health problems that we saw were kind of much further down the line when people were kind of dealing with the fallout that normality resumed and people went back to not knowing their neighbours, but they were still coping with a leaky roof over their heads, you know, and um, where they were going to live and whether they were going to move. So I think the thing to be really aware of is that people probably are coping right now because we have been having the beersies at the end of the driveways with the neighbours we hadn't met before COVID. (laughs) Um, But when normality resumes and you get back in your car and you might wave to your neighbours on the way back, how are we going to cope then? Uh, I think the important thing to remember is regardless of whether we're talking about a really difficult addiction journey or whether we're just talking about going through any crisis, the thing that heals people is connection with other people. And we can't lose that when we go back to normal. So if you found other ways to connect people during COVID and now you're trying to resume normality at level one, try and keep up those ways to connect with people. I was having dinner parties with whānau overseas during lockdown and I otherwise would have talked to them maybe once a month on the phone. But now we have, you know, Friday night pizza nights via Zoom and I think we'll continue to do that because otherwise we're not connecting. And the connection is the stuff that's going to keep us well as we realise what the fallout might be for us individual or as a society. Yeah, so I think if the, probably the one thing we've learned, isn't it, is that connection and kindness are so important, aren't they? So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's great talking to you. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday the 9th of June. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Andrea Vance, Tammy Allen, Alex Liu, Catherine George, John Hartefeld and Carol Hirschfeld. And a special shout out to lift attendant Katrina Ferguson. You can find us on all the podcast platforms. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Also, if you want to support Stuff's journalism by making a financial contribution to a locally owned media organisation, go to the 
link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We will be back on Thursday. Sukang. So